My name is Douglas Miles. I'm San Carlos Apache and Akimel Atom. I live and work in San Carlos. I am the creator and owner of Apache Skateboards. And um, also I curate a show um, for the last two, two and a half years called What Tribe, which is talks about the topic of stereotypes of tribal people in popular culture. I'm also a writer, a curator, social critic, um, a designer, and of course I'm an artist. Who was the first person to introduce you to the possibility that art could just be a way of life? Um, I was just talking to a really good friend about this just uh, yesterday actually it was probably really started when I was 12 I had an older sister by the name of Joanne and she showed me an old magazine article in Arizona Highways which was all about Native American art and this had to be in the mid to late 70s and I know I was 12 and she showed me the work in particular, I remember it stood out, was the work of Ellen Hauser. And she said, there's even a school, she said, in Santa Fe, she told me I was 12, for Native artists. And she said, you can go there someday. Um, and I think she's the first one that really planted in my mind that um, art would be a really cool thing to do. After her, was there other people along the way that kind of pushed you, or were you kind of a, a lone wolf in discovering your own tools? Uh, I didn't become a lone wolf till later. Um, but in the beginning, it was um, after that, I got married really young and um, ended up working nine to five jobs. I had my first daughter, but I I always wanted to make art, so I began to take art classes and pay for them myself. While working a nine-to-five, I took art classes part-time at community college, graphic design and art. And I didn't really know how I was going to become an artist. I just knew that that was a really big interest of mine. And then it must have been about 10 years later, uh, my parents began to approach me. My mom was making dolls here in San Carlos and she was traveling and they would do different markets. And then they came back and they told me, they said, uh, hey, you make art. You know, you're a really good artist and you should see some of the art that we see out there. And you're better than a lot of these artists and you should be out there selling your work too. So I was really, really actually shy and self-conscious about it. So I started to actually go to art shows with them and met some of their friends and their friends on these markets began to encourage me and that's how I started. Dang, so just kind of uh, tagging along? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. I, I wish I could say I did it all on my own, but I really did it. Just tagging along with my parents. My real mom, though, was also was uh, a dressmaker and a dress designer, and she made Apache dresses here in San Carlos for people. And my father was uh, uh, 
my real father was a musician. What do you think was the inspiration for you to move out of, like, the term is always so weird to say traditional, but like, you know, like craft and art of your, of your peeps, you know, and go into this whole world that you're in now with skateboarding and graffiti and. I, I kind of want to say it was, um, it was a couple of things actually. It was, it was probably, it was actually a number of things, but I know it was all around maybe 1998, 1999. And I ended up doing a residency in New York City in, in around 1999. And then my son at the same time started getting into skateboarding around that same time too, 98, 99, uh, Doug Jr. And so I used to look at all of the art on the boards and in the magazines and in the shops. Uh, but I was always doing more, uh, and I still do actually traditional subject matter, but I was doing a lot of primarily only traditional subject matter um, with Apache subjects. And I, But I was also looking around that time to turn... I'm just going to say it. I was looking for a way to increase my market, to increase my visibility. I was trying to figure out a way to create and discover alternative ways of promotion for my work slash advertisement. And I was looking for a way to do all these things with little to no money. And so I began to search how can I increase my market? How can I increase my market share? Because we know there are literally thousands of Native American artists. How can I cre- increase my visibility? What kind of alternative ways of promotion, um, advertisement, publicity can I create? Um, and how can I do all this with, with little to no money? So what I was doing was forcing myself um, to be even more creative in other areas instead of just not just the content but in in getting the work out there and that's uh what i began to think nonstop about for seemed like for like a year a year straight um and at, back in those days too that that was uh the days of dial-up internet for us here mm-hmm. but it was also the days of myspace and um, back then, when you got an email, it was kind of a big deal. Now it's just like whatever, it's spam or whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, it was like email. And now people do business like on Instagram, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so or or Facebook, of course. But um, that's kind of what happened. I think as I began to think to myself, um, how can I do all these things? Um, I began to think of ideas. I think what happened too was I wanted to, as I looked for alternative ways, I was also looking for, I'm not sure where I came up with that idea to to draw things that were a little more personal to me, which, which talked about a little bit more about my upbringing. Like where did I come from? What did I see when I grew up? What is that like to be me what was that what is that like to be a native person but not know your language what is that like to be a native person to grow up in south phoenix what is that like to be apache but not to live on the res but not be from and born and raised on this res 
So I wanted to kind of talk about that in the work and talk about it in a manner that where I'm not embarrassed, where I wasn't ashamed, but also didn't look corny, didn't look cliche either. Well, I didn't want to make it look like I was trying too hard to discuss my identity because I knew who I was. And I know that um, it's not my fault that I was forced to assimilate into mainstream society. It's not my mom's fault. It's not even my mom's fault. It's just the way the country shaped us. We had no choice in the way the country shaped Native American people in the, in the 21st century. And so we just kind of accepted and dealt with the forced removal, the forced assimilation, um, and we made the best of it. But I wanted to talk about what that was like, and I think I wanted to put that in my work and kind of lay aside traditional subject matter for a little bit and, and then come back to it and then mix it in there mix in the traditional subject matter with the more with the more current subject matter and as i was doing all those at that same time i began to uh, and i always uh liked books and films uh, a film came out a documentary called uh, dogtown and z boys and it must have been around 2000 2001 which was talking about a group of uh, basically poor kids that were skaters in, in venice california but how they they begin to take all those influences around them, surf influences, graffiti influence, even Chicano street culture influences, lowrider influences, hot rod influence, and they begin to turn it into um, something totally new. And at that time, I think that what the documentary was kind of, kind of doesn't show, but kind of does, is that they didn't know at the time what they were doing was making history. They just knew that they were having fun and making cool stuff. But that documentary had a real big influence on me, too, as I began to formulate the idea for Apache Skateboards. Was was your son a big influence in the formulation of Apache skateboards? Yeah, he he was because he was so into in, involved and focused on skating. And as I uh, in the beginning, like you know, I'm just a dad and I'm trying to make art and I'm trying to make business and I'm trying to work a job and pay bills. So in the beginning, I remember I didn't really pay attention to him. Like when he was into skateboarding, I would just get him the stuff he wanted and I'd go back to work, right? But but one day one day I actually really watched him and I was like oh, shoot, he's getting good at this stuff. And then I began to really, really watch him, and I began to think, oh, wow. I was like, <clears throat> I mean, I skated when I was a kid, too. And I remember collecting those old skateboard magazines, and I remember reading about all these kids like Stacy Peralta and these old skate brands like Gullwing Trucks and Powell Peralta Boards. And I remember all that stuff, and I remember the fun of skateboarding. So when he started to skate, I was like, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't tell him oh, skating is not for you. Oh, I didn't tell them, oh, skating is for white kids. I didn't say that because I skated when I was a kid and it was fun. I just said, oh, that's cool. And I began to really, after a while, I began to uh, really pay attention to what he was doing. And I think at the same time, I was, like I said, I was looking for alternative ways to market my work. And I'll t and. I think in reality, when, when, you're, when you're really looking for alternative ways to market, when you're really looking to increase your market share, what really happens to an artist is their work begins to change. They, they, 
they're forcing themselves to think differently about their work and their place in the world, especially if you really, really look for new creative um, venues and also forms and ways to get it out there. And so I began to see, uh, I think what happened is it, it caused me to be creative in more than one way. I didn't really look at the business model of, of being creative, but I think I looked at um, everything and anything, and I began to look at everything and anything and begin to pull and pick and use whatever I kind of felt like I could at that time. Uh, and I do that even now today now. I, you know, I use Tumblr and I'll use Instagram, I'll use Facebook, I'll, I'll use Twitter and, and try to, uh, and now actually primarily I make actually a lot of work just for social media, which I don't think people are catching on. But a lot of work that I'm putting out right now is basically just for social media. It's just basically online content. And I always say, if I was white, I bet people would say I was Picasso. <laughs> because yes. if you really go back and look at my Instagrams, <laughs> look at my Twitter, uh, read my Twitter, look at my Facebook, I'm actually uploading new content just about every day. It's new. It's pretty much fresh. It's my ideas. It's my concept. Sometimes it's just a photo but turned into a meme. Sometimes a photo scribbled on with my own text, my own hand styles that I learned in South Phoenix and you know in the 70s. But I think people think that it's just throwaway stuff, but it's not. It actually takes a long time to create these concepts, these for social media to that have a message, that have sometimes silly content, but sometimes really serious content. I recently did a show at UNM called Instapatchy which actually focuses on my online content, which I thought was a good opportunity to showcase nothing but the work I did for online, which in Instapatchee in, in Albuquerque, I think it was about 40, 42 separate images. But actually, when I sent them to the curator, I had over 100 pieces. So a curator in Phoenix at the Mon Orchid Gallery downtown during Herd Museum weekend, she wants Instapatchee to go up at the Mon Orchid Gallery in the first weekend of March. So that show is now going to open, and it'll be nothing but um, my online content, social media work, which basically centers around photography. How do you transfer that over into a gallery setting, something like that? For me, it's pretty easy. It's really up to the curators, though. I try not to get too caught up in, because I've made a lot of um, work just for Instagram or Facebook, so to speak, or social media. Social media, you don't really have to have high-definition images. You kind of should. But you really don't. Mm -hmm. uh, the only problem is when you're actually show, showing the work, you're going to have to blow it up a little. So they're averaging 24 by 24. You're losing a lot of clarity in the piece. But on the other, on the other hand, I kind of, I kind of like that because it wasn't meant to be looked at as like ultra super ultra fine art. And coming from my school of thought, this whole kind of punk ethic, this kind of do-it-yourself ethic, this kind of by any means necessary ethic, I think it doesn't matter sometimes how clear or how unclear the piece is. I think what really matters is the feeling of the piece. Is your text going to be put up with them? I, I think on some of them, but I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to stick to titling the pieces by using hashtag titles. I mean, it's now it's kind of almost cliche, hashtag titles, Instapatchy, Instagram is now turning into, you know, now everybody's into Snapchat or whatever, but I'm too old to be messing with Snapchat, so uh, I'm going to stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 
there's a whole, I always, I kind of think too, sometimes there's a kind of a different audience actually sometimes on Twitter. And then there's a different audience on Facebook and there's a different audience on Instagram. And there's, of course, a different audience on Tumblr. So it's, it's really interesting how, and I don't link all of these social medias either together. I know some people do. It's like, oh, they link them all together. So you're seeing the same picture on four different, you know, social media websites. But I, I, don't, I don't do that because I think it seems kind of robotic. Hmm. How did you get so fascinated with, like, the interweb and all of this social networking? You know, like, when, when did you realize that was something that you could utilize to this level? I'm not sure when. I guess I would have to go back and actually give some of the credit to MySpace. I guess that's kind of when it started, when I realized that MySpace was actually kind of, uh, as far as I know, I mean, there are other ones, but it was probably the most popular, what I call user-friendly platform, which allows the viewer to basically interact with the artist. And even though, even if it was just uh, online or a virtual interaction, it allows the viewer to interact with the artist. They could share with the artist. They could ask the artist a question. The artist could talk back to them. You could follow them. They could follow you. And I think that's really what people wanted all along. That's really what people have always wanted is a connection with their favorite artist. And once I realized people just wanted to connect with, with me as an artist, um, laying all the creepy stuff aside, if you know what I mean, people following you or wanting to connect with you uh, uh, as an artist and... I found that uh, women could be just as creepy as men. I mean, yeah, I'm a man. I've been creepy before too, right? But I found women could be creepy towards me. Like, hey, uh, what's going on? I really like your art, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. And, and then they'll start talking to me about, like, the girl that I'm I'm with. You know, like, who is she? Like, she's lame. And I'm like, what? It's like, none of your business. <laughs> And it's like late night weird drunken messages from some random chick in the Midwest or something. So, or, or there's all types of creeps online, you know, women too. Like, I'm just going to say it. Like, I have a, attractive daughters, right? And sometimes I could tell dudes would be out of me in hopes of getting to know or to talk to my daughter. And sometimes women would be out of me to get a hold of and talk to my daughters too. <laughs> And I'll be like, you know, you're just laughing, right? You're like, like no. Uh, 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 edit that out. No. I'm I mean, we'll, and I'm not trying to be like like overprotective dad either. I was just like, I can't believe this. Like these people are, you know, these people are crazy. I mean, I know my daughters are beautiful. And, you know, I even had a, somebody told me the other day, they go, how's your hot son doing? This little girl, right? Young girl. And then. <laughs> I just looked at her like I didn't know how to answer her. I didn't want to answer her. But uh, <laughs> uh, aside from the creeps, uh, I think I think that's where and a lot of artists actually get sidetracked. Um, I encourage actually artist friends of mine. Um, I notice, I watch artist friends of mine as their careers grow. And I notice that the more stable these friends of mine are in their personal life, the more their careers grow. Um and I've seen some of my artist friends, their their lives are not stable. They don't have a stable personal life. And they kind of flounder. They kind of float. They can't really just, they can't hit their, they can't hit their stride. And I just told a friend of mine just the other day uh, that I know really, known really well for years. I said, look, how's you and your girlfriend doing? And he said, uh, we're okay. We're kind of having a hard time. I said, look, man, I said, you got a good lady. You want to keep her. You want to hold on to her. 
I said, because she's going to support you. She's the one that's going to support you and give you a lot of stability. I said, I know what all the movies say. It's cool to be hedonistic and live a crazy artist lifestyle and party and drink and, you know, chase chicks. But the reality of it is that's a, that's a myth. The, the, it's a myth that supposedly tells you that's what makes you a good artist. In reality, it's stability that makes you a good artist. Uh, Self-control um, living a calm life, you know, having a job, you know, having the lights on and money to pay your bills, that's actually what um, makes you a good artist. It's not um, crazy lifestyle, you know, and even even native artists have bought into that, you know. Uh, it's mostly non-native artists that were, were sold this idea that, like, Jackson Pollock or Basquiat and all these amazing artists though um, live these crazy alcoholic drug-induced lifestyles but the reality of it is um, it's not the best way to be, be an artist it's not good for your process uh, you might you might be more creative some people can be more creative and think of cool creative things but when you're high or drunk but or you know cool conversations or cool friends and cool times but you know it's I don't think it makes for a good artist to live a crazy, reckless life. I really don't. With Apache skateboards, um, getting involved in art uh, in this youth movement type of way, was it intentional? I mean, it just seems like you you really did a service for like indigenous youth in this way. And was that just like a benefit to this whole artistic experience you were having personally, or was that intentional as an artist? Like, was that conscious, or was that in a happy accident, you know, that you have influenced people positively throughout the world. Uh, I think it's, I think it was, it's actually a little both. Uh, uh, I, I do say that Apache skateboards was kind of, um, it was kind of, I always say kind of accidental. Um, cause once I created Apache skateboards, it began to take a life of its own. I noticed that, the fans and the collectors and the skaters or, you know, the kids in the hood, they began to put their own meaning to Apache skateboards that I didn't even think about. And so, uh, and I just, once I talked to the fans and to the collectors and to the kids in the hood or in the res or wherever, I mean, I could hear what they were identifying with. Some were identifying with the image on the boards some were identifying because the kids on the boards were um, ethnic kids, tribal kids, brown kids. Some were identifying with the fact that I combined Apache or native culture and skate culture. Some identify with the fact that I, the fact that I just did it, that I just did something that no one had ever done was just uh, rad and very punk. And some were, I even had a conversation with, Two, two dudes that used to 
work for Def Jam Records. And I was in New York City. And we had lunch with uh, actually Say Adams and, uh, and the former publicity guy from Def Jam. And he says, what you do with the Apache Skateboards is very hip-hop, he said. So everyone was putting their own meaning to uh, what we had done or I had done. And I, I didn't do it by myself, actually. I mean, I came up with the concept and idea. But in the beginning, it was me, Doug, and Irwin. And I kind of looked at them as my sort of like my board of advisors. Mm. And if they said this was cool, we'd do it. If they said, ah, it's not cool, then I wouldn't do it. But for the most part, I kind of I shaped it, but with really with, with them, with really with them in mind, actually. And then at the same time, they kind of led me and guided me, but I still shaped a lot of it. We really worked closely together. As far as was I trying to influence or honor youth? I think that's your question, or in, yeah. bring youth in or bring yeah. them up. Is that the question? Yeah, kind uh, on of. On purpose? Yeah, bring them up. I think I was specifically, yes, trying to bring bring up the voice of youth uh, for a lot of reasons. And I did it on purpose for a lot of reasons because, one, we live on the res. Two, there's no jobs here. Three, uh, it's a challenged community. It's a community, a depressed economy in this community. It's high unemployment, high rates of alcoholism. But I wanted to combine art and business and skateboarding and culture and kids into this one semi-cohesive mix and then put it out there for the world to look at it and plug these kids in there so kids could see they could do it too. And I'm not just saying kids like little kids. I mean young people, young adults, young artists, kids that wanted to skate. I don't care. Kids that wanted to make lowrider bikes, kids that wanted to make hot rods. It didn't matter to me. All that matters is if that kids would look at Apache Skateboards and say, we want to do that too, we could do it too, they're doing it, so we could do it. So yes, it was on purpose to inspire uh, mostly first kids on the res, native kids, kids with, uh come from uh, troubled backgrounds, troubled families, uh, difficult times, and kind of get their focus off just well, maybe just drinking and partying and fighting uh, and maybe get their focus on just making something so to me when i talk about it, i don't know why it seems it sounds almost kind of cheesy a little bit but i know that's what i meant i mean i'm not trying to be cheesy but that's kind of how i felt because i i think it goes back to having um one of my nephews actually is ruben's older brother ruben um has been working with us for you know since 02 but his older brother was a skateboarder and a snowboarder and he was like one of these kids that was like really into Morrissey and all this stuff and um no he passed away and he was he was he was really young he passed away in a car accident so that was kind of a life-changing moment for me too he passed away here in San Carlos and I was like what am I doing you know how, how can I help if I can't help my own family you know how, how can I what am I doing for kids for this next generation how can I inspire kids to not go out like that Hmm. You know, I don't want to lose no more kids in my family, and I don't want to see kids get lost. So uh, I began to try to make some kind of impact, and I think that's where it came from because I didn't want to see kids give up, get hopeless, just party themselves to death, which is real easy to do. You know, so it, it happens so much. Death on the res happens so much. There's actually a death culture here on the res now too, which people don't really look at. 
What do you mean by cultures. that? Like, people, when somebody dies, it's like it's like almost it's a reverse celebration. Sometimes there's a two-day wake. We went from one-day wakes to two-day wakes. Some people have wakes for four days in a row. You know, everyone's talking about, you know, they print T-shirts and it's like, rest in peace. You know, it's like, uh, you know, and then a year later, they, they'll, they'll have what they call a memorial dinner. So it's like, yeah, it's like a big deal. So it's a death culture sometimes. And I think on the reservations and other um, poor communities, we, we, we begin to uh, idolize and worship uh, death as this kind of final uh, and this amazing final party when in reality it's really shouldn't be looked at as a party it should be looked at as something to avoid at all costs you know <laughs> yeah What's the thought behind what tribe? That's it feels like that's your next big stance kind of that you're taking is what tribe? Am I correct? Yeah, what tribe is actually ongoing and what tribe basically came um from me looking at I mean I love films, I love American pop culture, you know, um, I'm a student of it. We all are. If you're born and raised in America, you can't get away from pop culture. So, you know, I'd be lying if I if I said I didn't like Pharrell. I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't like the Neptunes. I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't like the Gorillas just as much as I like Muddy Waters. So, um, I'd be lying if I if I said if I didn't say I think Kanye West really is a genius. I mean, somebody that can knock out beats, you know. Day after day, minute after minute, hour after hour, people like that they spit and a beat comes out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you can't. I also there's an old saying too: you can't argue with success. But as I looked at uh, the portrayal of Native people in film and media, I begin to say, "Wow, these we're really way behind in popular culture and media. There's really not very good portrayals." And the thing that kind of set it off and kicked it into gear was. Uh, when I saw the, the world's biggest hipster, which is Johnny Depp, was to play a native person in, I think it's called The Lone Ranger. And I was like, wow, it's like the coolest dude on planet Earth, the world's biggest hipster, is going to play one of us. But when I saw the, I was like, this thing is, this whole thing is horrible. And when I actually saw, finally saw the trailer, I said, I was right. He's speaking pidgin English. He looks cartoonish. I was like, this is worse than I thought. And right before that came out, the video came out with no doubt with the Gwen Stefani was dressed like an Indian girl and she was being whipped and tied up and the dude was dressed like Lone Ranger. And I was like, this is crazy. It's like 2012 and this is actually happening right now. You know, I was like, this, this can't happen. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call these people out. And so for a year, very few people know this, but for a whole year on Twitter, I did nothing but trash talk the Lone Ranger. And Johnny for real? I, for, nobody knows it's for a whole year awesome. and and I found out later I found out later that you can actually do a search on Twitter if you type in Lone Ranger boom all the tweets pop up on Lone Ranger all my tweets popped up for a whole year <laughs> and guess what happened when the Lone Ranger came out the movie bombed 
it got an 80% bomb rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The movie bombed horribly, major losses. And I was like, and then I had an actress one time, after the film came out, she wanted to meet with me in Phoenix. And she was actually in one of the Twilight films. And she, she called me out and she said, her and another native actor said that I probably should not be criticizing the Lone Ranger in native films because it might be the last time a native film comes out. And she was like a really good looking actress too. And she'd really been in some major films and she was telling me and I was thinking to myself, does she think I'm that influential? I was like, wow. I was like, they, her and that dude, they both work in Hollywood. Like I work in San Carlos, you know, <laughs> they're working in LA. I'm working here on the rest, but I'm on Twitter every, just every day. But I was like, I can't have that, you know. And there, there's a reason I can't have it because I make content too. Because I create films too. Because I'm creating content too. I'm a creator and a curator of content, and I'm also shaping culture too. But I don't like these people trying to shape our culture or shaping culture to swing the other way that puts us in a negative light. And so I had to, as a filmmaker, as a producer, as a director. I felt like I have to speak up on it. I have to. And the reason I could didn't hesitate because I don't eat in Santa Fe, if you know what I mean. And I'm using Santa Fe as like a code word for fancy town, not, <laughs> not anti you guys. <laughs> I'm not anti you, Santa Fe. You know, art livers. <laughs> I am anti fancy, fancy people, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I don't eat in Santa Fe, I don't eat in Scottsdale. I don't eat in Hollywood, you know, I don't eat there. I don't eat in New York City. I eat on the res. And so where I'm at is where I'm from. And I, I don't have to improve, impress those people. They don't have to hire me if they don't want to. But I noticed during that whole time, a lot of Native actors were quiet on the whole thing. And even some very top-name Native American directors actually would not come out and talk about it because they don't want to get their heads chopped off because they know who butters their bread. They know Hollywood's buttering their bread. They know who they got to suck up to every once or two or three times a year when they do these big um, movie meetings, you know. They got to support their own. They have to support uh, Johnny Depp. They couldn't go on record as saying Johnny Depp's stupid for taking this role. And I was also very careful to say this. I never said anything about Johnny Depp's ethnicity. I never did. To me, the issue was not the ethnicity of Johnny Depp. The, ethnic, the, the issue was not, should a native have played that role of Tonto? To me, the issue was the role itself is stereotype. Boom, that's it. There's no place in America now for that type of stereotypical role at all. I don't care if it was a native or non-native that played it. Depp was just dumb for taking it. And if you notice, his last three films have flopped. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's not... You know, I'm not, and that's not my fault. You know, that's not my fault. Because the reality of it is, there's two realities. One, the American public is actually smart now. They want a certain kind of realness in their films. And I think they looked at Johnny Depp and said to themselves, in their own little way, that dude's not Native American. That's Johnny Depp <laughs> with a bunch of makeup, you know. And then the second thing, though, is like, Johnny Depp is cool, right? And I like, there's some Johnny Depp movies that I really, really like. But he wasn't cool enough to play Native American. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wasn't that cool. 
He was cool, but he wasn't that cool, right? He could play a pirate, you know, whatever. Cool. And that's cool. He could play a pirate. He could even play a gangster. Cool. Right on. Okay. Donnie Brasco. Right on. But he couldn't play a native dude. He wasn't that cool because people didn't believe it. So when you talk about these kind of issues through through what tribe, just for people who aren't familiar with like that context, what are you doing? Are you doing spray paint? Are you doing photography or everything? Well, there's also there's another subtext with what tribe is. I wanted to also select artists that are a little uh, that were not Native American artists and put them together with Native artists. And I say tribal people, so I also had uh, African-American artists, Asian artists, and then, of course, you know, Chicano artists. And then I also wanted um, some of the artists in what tribe. So, for example, Ediberto Orio, uh, Mike Miller, they're really well-established artists in Los Angeles. But I wanted a chance for um, emerging artists to actually show with more established artists, um, mainstream artists from the West Coast, like, Eddie Berto and Mike Miller, um, and a chance to show in that manner. So by showing with Mike Miller and Eddie Berto, because the work is so heavy and so well-respected, that their integrity added to the integrity of the, of the, the show concept, which was basically an anti-stereotype show. What, but all I said to the artists was, talk about stereotypes in your work. I didn't tell them what to paint. I just said, talk, talk about stereotypes in your work, and they did. Um, and they did it in different ways, and they did it in any way they wanted to. And um, you know, some used graffiti, some used stencils, some used uh, uh, wheat paste, some used installations. And so, uh, there are a lot of different types of artwork there. And so, I think if everything goes well, um, the next What Tribe show, we're hoping that it gets hosted at UNM. Let's talk about that right now. I don't want to say too much, but um, that's kind of in the works. And I don't like to, to give out show information ahead of time, but I don't mind saying that, that it, that may be there. Consider yourself revolutionary? I think if I am revolutionary, it's just in the way I thought about how my work fit into society and how it didn't fit. But how I didn't care whether it fit or didn't fit. How I didn't care. I think that's probably the way I would see myself as revolutionary. Because once I thought about, hey, I don't care how my work fits into society. I don't care how it fits into native society anymore. I don't care if it fits into non-native society. I'm just going to make it. I'm going to have something to say and I'm going to say it and I I want people to like it. You know, I want I want to get paid. You know, I want I want to have cool places to show. I want a platform, but on the other hand, like I'm not I don't care how much money people have. I don't care how good looking that curator is. You know, I don't care how 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 many houses or cars they have. If they don't understand where I'm coming from and they don't care about 
where I'm coming from, that I don't care where they're coming from. They have to understand that without artists like myself, they got nothing. Those museums got nothing. Those galleries got nothing. You know, those art spaces, they have nothing without artists like myself that are out here sleeping on couches, sleeping in the car, sleeping in the parking lot of a gas station or a truck stop. Hey, you know, at, uh, oftentimes, as well-known as I was, I slept on the couch at Humble. I was, you know, because, but they always opened the door to me and they, they knew that I was important to them. That's all that mattered to me is that it was important to them. During the first Humble show, I had a fancy artist friend of mine, Santa Fe artist friend of mine. He came to me outside. It was kind of, and everybody was inside, you know, looking at the art, listening to music, playing music. I think you and Michael were spinning. People had beer and this fancy artist friend of mine, he goes, he goes, hey, he goes, why don't you paint the way you used to? And, and I'll call my people and we'll do that show down in Albuquerque. And we'll get that gallery that I'm in right now in Santa Fe and just, you know, we'll do it big. And then he got quiet. He goes, but why do you want to show here? He was pointing into that garage, right? <laughs> he goes, but why do you want to show here? And I just looked at him, my fancy artist friend of mine, right, from Santa Fe, who will remain nameless. <laughs> Though probably everybody would know who he is. And he says, why do you want to show here? But I was showing with Rose Simpson. I was showing with Shanupa. I was showing with Micah. I was showing with, you know, I was, you know, I was there too. I was there when that whole thing was born. And I was like, and I was thinking to myself, like, if, I hit, if he has to ask me, why do I want to show here? I don't even need to answer him because he won't even understand my answer. I just, all I told him was, just, hey, man, these are my friends. Hmm. That's all I said. I said, I got to go back in. These are my friends. He goes, okay. But that's why I said, that's, I don't know if I'm making the point, but the point is, to me, that's revolutionary is not wanting to, not caring to fit in, not caring if I fit in or not. As far as me being a revolutionary, I'd rather I'd rather leave that up to other people like yourself or my friends or the fans or people that that want to write about my work. I'd rather let them say that. I don't really feel comfortable saying that myself. But the reason I say it's revolutionary is because we're taught as Native artists that we must be in a museum. We must be in a fancy gallery. We must be in that magazine. We must have ads in that magazine. and We must make it. And in order to make it, we have to have an ad and we have to have a gallery and have to have a museum. No, you don't. You can make your own gallery now. You can have your own online museum. You can have your own virtual show. And that's kind of what we all did. You know, that's what everyone did. You, know, you can create your own genre. And, and I, I can't really say I created my own genre, but I can say I kind of just created, I think maybe if anybody looked at it, just maybe a different way of looking at why art is important. If mm. it's important to you, then it should be. Then that's all that matters. And if that's revolutionary, then I guess that's all that matters. Because, like I said, I don't care. I don't care how how rich the gallery owner is. You know, I don't care. Like I said, how fine his lady is, or how much money they made. I could care less. It don't matter to me unless they're spending it on me. It don't matter to me how much money you make unless you spend it on me. That's the only reason it's going to matter. But if you're just throwing it around and blowing it on yourself, you know, a whole lot of good you're doing for people when you're just, you know, being selfish. We're Native American people. We're taught not to be selfish. We're not supposed to be self-centered. We're not supposed to be arrogant. 
But when some native artists get a little bit of love, boom, that's all they act like. Oh, look at me. Oh, check me out. Oh, look at my new chick. Look at, oh, I got two chicks. You know, oh, I got two galleries and two chicks and another car and another truck. You know, why am I here sleeping on the couch? You know, I'm like, get out of here. Like, who cares? You know, you're still a jerk. You're more of a jerk now than you were before. You know, you're on your second, third wife. Like, oh, wow, you're an amazing artist. You're on your fourth wife. Big freaking deal, you know. Am I saying too much? No. Should I just not say this stuff or what? This is exactly the forum to say this stuff. <laughs> Am I getting off the subject here or what? I feel like I'm getting off track. <laughs> it's all part of the subject. How do you deal with failure? Um, I guess I, I guess I just first I think I accept it. I think you just accept it at first. You accept the failure, and then somehow maybe even try to embrace it somehow, even though it hurts and it's painful. Uh, you try to embrace it and accept it and take responsibility for it if it's your fault. And then whatever pieces you can salvage from it, um, try to pick them up if there's anything salvageable and kind of move move on or, or let it go, you know. And, of course, you know, you, you try to learn. You kind of really try to learn. I think I'm the kind of person that will I'll just pick it apart, though. I'll be like, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Why did this not work? Why did it not work? Uh, why is this not working now? And how can I go about it the next time and make it work the next time? But I'll take it apart. I'll take myself apart in the process and usually blame myself first. What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? I'll blame myself before I blame other people. Um, I'll either say it was a bad plan or it was bad planning or I wasn't prepared or I didn't do my homework. Uh, I'll blame myself. Um, that's usually how I, how I deal with failure. I don't know if that makes me a neurotic or what, but it, it kind of feels like it sometimes because you just go over and over in your head and like, what the heck did I do wrong? Why didn't I do that? And, you know, I thought we were good together. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you loved me kind of thing, you know, like... You look in the mirror, like, what do I got? What do I not got that he got? So, you know, it's kind of a whole neurotic thing, but that's just one example. <laughs> so how do you how do you measure success? What what in your mind is success? Uh, success, uh, I think, can be a lot of things. But I think success is kind of like, a, for an artist, I think it's getting to do and make what you really like to do and what you really like to make. And then I think the second level is, probably getting to get to a point where whatever you think that you want to do that you really really want to do like if i really want to make films then being able to make a film to me that that would be success where i could i always felt like i'm just um all these years i've been just building up this cool group of people that i could always 
call upon to actually do a larger project like a film. I just always felt like, oh yeah, they're good at this, and I'll call them one of these days for that, and she's good at that, and he's good at this, and one day we're going to all come together and like make this big movie. You know, I'll already know who to call. Because some people are good at stuff like that, like just building, you know, sets or backgrounds or even if it's just makeup and hair, it sounds frivolous, right? But some lady one time she said to me, she says, I'm a makeup artist. But I was like, some people might think that's frivolous, but I was like, that's not frivolous. That's the real art form. So I just, I think something, when you have the ability to make what you want, when you want, I think that's success. But yeah, it'd be nice to have, you know, some of that big time Santa Fe artist money too in the bank, but you know, <laughs> that's another kind of success too, I guess. You know, you know fancy Santa Fe artist cash, you know, uh, I don't, I guess that'd be success, certain kind of success, I guess, that seems to have eluded me for some reason. <laughs> Just laughing. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Do I sound bitter? So what's this movie that you're going to make? Uh, it'll probably be like uh, Geronimo meets Godfather 1 and 2. It'll be very violent. It'll be very uh, a, more like a revenge fantasy. Wow. And I'm kind of actually a little worried, though, that the next film, somebody out there, and I'm thinking Tarantino will do this, because Tarantino has been doing this, especially with Django. He basically did Django as a revenge fantasy, almost. Um, and I'm kind of concerned that he may do that with the Native American storyline. Hmm. I don't want him to do it. Uh, but I kind of think that's the direction that he's been. He's actually doing a Western right now, too, called The Notorious Nine. And I wouldn't doubt that one of those characters is going to be a, no, a Native American outlaw. But in my mind, I can kind of sense by looking at some of his last films, like Django's a Western, uh, and Inglorious Bastards, uh, one of the monologues that Brad Pitt says, he says, we're going to run this like an Apache resistance, he said. And he's holding up that knife. He goes, we're going to be fast and we're going to be ruthless. And so I thought, He's thinking about Native Americans and he's thinking a specific Apache story. That's what Tarantino's thinking about. Hmm. So, and then I think in Death Proof, there's an old movie poster from an old uh, Native American film or Western from the 70s called Soldier Blue, which was considered really violent about a Native American massacre. So, um, I'm not saying I'm Tarantino. I'm not saying I'm, I'm trying to be that. I'm just saying that um, the idea that I have is just film a native american film that has a lot to do with the um, history from our perspective just kind of from our perspective and yet that'd be fun to watch and that would be you know violent you know real violent <laughs> violent history people always ask me well why do you have so much guns in your art why do you have so much guns in your art i'm like look in america like What's the number one movie right now? Tell me, what's the number one movie in America right now? I just saw it yesterday. America Sniper. Pow, 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 pow. Don't tell me to put no guns in my art. <laughs> you know what I mean? Seriously. Yeah, everybody's all freaked out. Like, oh, don't put guns in your art. Or, that's 
horrible, you're promoting violence. Yeah, but no, you're the one buying all those little military games for your kids to play for eight hours in a row. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it, the Call of Duty? You know, it's, you know, uh, I don't care, Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, they're all violent, you know. Mm -hmm. And then these kids are picking up guns and shooting each other in school and town, and they're, they're like, America don't even want to look at the, the, probably the biggest, their biggest export is not just popular culture, it's probably violent. It's probably violent popular culture. It's probably the biggest export. They don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about that. You know, they don't want to talk about that. But um, I'm not trying to promote violence. I'm just trying to talk about history from our perspective. So on that, on that same kind of flow of talking, talking about youth, what kind of advice do you have for? other artists out there who are kind of maybe middle career or just beginning or in school even like do you have any advice or wisdom you can offer yeah i think um i always used to feel bad when i would ask like an older artist for advice because they always say something that i didn't expect them to say i'd be like that's not cool i wanted something cool i wanted to say something cool and artsy and you know something profound but uh, but now now the shoe's on the other foot. Now I have to be that artist, and I have to say something profound and cool and artsy, but I'm afraid I'm not going to do that. I think <laughs> the best advice I could give young artists is to uh, stay in school and um, keep your job. Uh, and if you don't have a job, then you should probably get one, if, especially if you're not um, at that level where you can go full-time. You can't become a full-time artist until you... Um, build a an audience and and that audience will build a demand builds a demand for your work you have to build the demand for your work but you can't build demand for your work until you build an audience and you can't build an audience overnight you can't build an audience on facebook you can't build it on instagram you have to still build it the old-fashioned way like a touring rock and roll band actually has to tour and go city to city town to town state to state you can't do it online it it People tell you you can, but you really can't. There's still some things you still have to do the old-fashioned way, which is you got to go to a show, you got to go to a little market, you have to be out there, you got to talk, you got to be nice, you got to wear, you got to dress pretty fairly decent. You don't want to be going to the art show wearing cutoffs and flip-flops, you know, your hair all scraggly. I'm sorry, native artists, cool native artist dudes, middle-aged dudes. Please try to step up your game a little bit, middle-aged native artist dudes. You might be older and it might be cool to dress like that, you know, on the beach, but people don't want to see your cutoff shorts, you know, and your flip-flops, you know? <laughs> do you feel yeah. like, do you feel like that's lacking? Is that, um, presentation? That, yeah, presentation? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I don't feel that at all. I just, <laughs> I just remember going a couple of times to Indian market and, seen some of my literal my peers were like showing up at their boots with cutoffs and flip-flops and i'm like thinking to myself dude you know it's like could you dress a little better on sunday morning you know <laughs> it wasn't nothing like a per i'm not trying to be like all better than them but and then and then i had some well-known native artists too but it actually made fun of me too like to my face like like i don't know i don't know if they were threatened or whatever because i like to wear hats you know and trying to make fun of my hat but i was like presentation is important you know it's always going to be important you know dress nice uh and then it's going back to the job thing i think it's just important to support yourself 
you have to support yourself until you can build an audience and demand for your work to one day you can you can go full time but you have to build the audience which creates demand for your work mm-hmm. like i had a job for many many years i'm full time artist now um i'm not wealthy you know i have a little bit of money in the bank but that's just so i can get to and from places and um you know maybe get the supplies i need and you know i'm trying to plan a trip to uh, los angeles in the next week or two but my truck needs work so uh, i need to deliver art i need to pick up work i just need to say hi to some friends and um but before you can get to that level where uh you can kind of be independent you really have to do it the old fashioned way and see when you have a job you have um a regular income and when you have a regular income you can actually have money to pay the light bill or pay for the water bill or have a little bit of food in the refrigerator but if you're hungry and you're sitting in the dark and you're cold believe me you're not it might look cool in the in the Basquiat film cuz he's sleeping in the park in there and he wakes up in copper box right and I look cool <laughs> but the reality of it is when you're hungry you do not want to make art <laughs> when you're freezing cold last thing on your mind is making this amazing profound painting you know you're not trying to be basquiat you're trying to get some food you know what i mean but it looks cool though i mean i'm i i fell for it too i wanted to be at basquiat too the funny thing about that film is the reality of it is what people don't catch is it's actually a morality tale it's actually a it's a morality tale it's really what it is mm. it, it the film is actually the hidden message The thing that takes you over with the Basquiat film is the fact that there's so many famous people that he knew that and so many famous people that he met and the famous people that play the people in the film like who who plays the Warhol but David Bowie, right? Like, oh wow, that's just like freaking great, right? Bowie's like a genius, right? And he played and Basquiat's friends with him, but the morality tale, the subtext is really like don't do what he did. He he got he pimped himself out. You know, he 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 let himself go and let himself kind of get pimped out a little bit and he he said all, all he wanted to do was get known and get famous and so what did he do he got with the famous user and his friend in that one scene it's really short and it's not romantic his friend says he tries to tell him says, he'll use you he's known for it he'll use you mm. but you it's funny you don't even hardly see that character in the film anymore after that except when he's offending him again later on and he says you know he and he walks out he walk basically walks out of his life he's trying to tell him how to be how how to behave but at some point in the film character basquiat he just like like he don't care no more about how to be he just wants fame he wants that money he wants that glory hmm. and he gets it i'm not saying basquiat was not a great painter i'm just saying that the film really is is a cautionary tale for young artists but because it's so it's done in such a glamorous way with such glamorous music and glamorous characters and you know great acting and uh you know in in New York City you know it's like with this kind of cool you know bohemian New York 70s you know early 80s background feel and vibe to it you know you kind of get caught up into that but you you don't really catch the fact that the story of Basquiat in the film version at least is a cautionary tale 
how not to be, what not to become as an artist, what not to do, how not to treat people, how not to get hooked on drugs, how not to chase after fame, not to chase after money, not to chase after women. Because he had a good woman in the movie, but he chases after them anyways, you know. So that's what people don't catch, and that's what's so seductive about uh, fame and wealth and power is very, very seductive for uh, artists, and, it's, and I think it's even more seductive for Native artists and artists of color, because that's stuff that we don't even ever really think about. We know it's out there, but, you know, it's like uh, it's like the Cypress Hill song. You want to be a rock star, you know? You want, you know, drive a big car, go, you know? You check that out. It's, he's, he's In the Cypress Hill song, Rock Star, he's really, he's really telling the truth, what it really is like. You, know, you got to watch your back all the time. Somebody else is going to come up. It's bigger than better than you. If you're not careful, you're going to get pimped out. But a lot of these young cats out there right now, they don't even know. They don't even know. I mean, hey, you know, a lot of these young cats, here's what I tell them. They just need to chill a little bit. Some of these young artists, Native American painter cats. Look, I know dudes whose handwriting is better than your last 10 paintings. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> So just chill a little bit, all right? Just cool out on the posting, you know, the hashtagging. Because I know dudes whose handwriting is better than your last 10 paintings. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I know that sounds kind of off a little bit, but it's true, right? It's good to be humble. And I think that that's a, a big thing that's missing in our culture today. I think they need to. And I think they need to give respect and honor to whom honors do, you know? Yeah, some dudes, uh, and I think there are some artists, too, that need to do that. Some well-known artists need to do that um, and need to help. Well, some well-known artists need to help more people, nor young artists. You know, well-known artists that are established need to do their job to help the next generation come forward, or else they're going to be forgotten. They, they, their legacy will not last. Like, It's the artists that help other artists that will create a legacy but the ones that just step on everybody like nobody's gonna care nobody's gonna care about them in the end um you know as far as do i think about my own legacy yeah i do i know you didn't ask me that but i'm gonna bring it up anyways because i'm responsible i'm but i'm i'm native american i'm i'm indian man if i not thinking about my legacy is really like Legacy for me is different than legacy for another culture because to me, legacy really means how am I thinking about my tribe in the next 50 to 100 years? My tribes, who's following me, who's watching me, how do I lead? I mean, I got Instagram, I got Twitter, I got Facebook, I got Tumblr. You might think I'm going to post something else besides my breakfast this morning, you know what I mean? Besides my dinner, you know, at Maria's. Now, I love Maria's, but I may want to post something a little more, you know, a little more serious content than that because somebody's watching me or as you know as i say the res is watching so i want to to have something or leave something behind you know i'm not young i wasn't never trying to pretend to be young i never i never try to act young you know i just like being myself and i paid attention to what everyone was saying and doing but i was really concerned about leaving a good impact behind you know even when i was drinking and partying a lot i still was really conscious of trying to behave and be on good behavior no matter how crazy i got because i didn't want people to say oh doug miles um he was just hitting on me left and right 
Oh, that Doug Miles, he was just had mad chicks. He just comes to town and hits on mad chicks. Like, I don't want people to say that about me, you know? It's like, that'd be lame, but they say that about, you know, certain dudes out there, certain hip-hop, native hip-hop dudes and native artist dudes, and it's like, it's lame, you know? It's like, <clears throat> it's not a good reflection on your family and your community, and it's not a good a good a way to model behavior for those that are coming up after you. I'm not saying I'm an angel. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I didn't hit on chicks. I'm just saying that artists and native artists in particular, I think, need to really think about giving back. No, no, let me rephrase that. That sounds too preachy. Native artists need to think about other people besides themselves. They don't have to give nothing back if they don't want to. But they should think about other people besides themselves. Because you're Native, Native American, just because you're successful. Okay, yeah, you're a success. Yeah, you have a fancy house. Yeah, you take rich people out for dinner. You buy the rich people dinner. That's the thing I thought was weird, too, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> <laughs> like, I heard artists, artists have to take the collectors out for dinner. I was like, what? I never heard that. But I heard, I heard that happens in Santa Fe, and I was like, I don't get it. But my point is, I think that <clears throat> artists, uh, if you're successful, then you need to um, think about other people besides yourself. And because if you don't, then all of our tribes and our communities and our res and our people are in danger of truly um, becoming extinct because that's what keeps us going. It's not, it's not necessarily a strict adherence to uh, cultural social mores, but it's more of a strict adherence to a law of love that keeps people going into the next 50, 100, 500 years. A strict adherence to the laws of love because um, love is something that real love, real compassion actually transcends space and time. That's really where Native artists should be coming from. It's love that actually um, separates the real revolutionaries from the fake ones. It's love for your people. If you could be preachy, if you could have a soapbox moment to speak out about something, what would that be for you? I think it's really important to know that in order to create and be creative, you have to know that to truly be creative and understand creativity, you have to understand that we're made by the creator. That's really where it comes from. In order to truly create, I think I really believe the truly gifted, talented artists really know that it really is a gift from the creator, but they don't really talk about it, but they have to know it because in order to really flow with that gift and that talent, you actually have to tap into this kind of in eternal creative spirit that's in all of us. Sometimes people forget where that comes from and what that's about and what that, that's like. The truly creative individuals, though, 
they're able to tap into it almost instantaneously because they know where it comes from. It's a gift. And it's not just a technique. It's not just something they learned. It's something that they really, um, sometimes it's the very thing that saved them. Like you talk to artists and like, man, I don't know what I'd do if it wasn't for hip hop. You know, I don't know if I'd do if I couldn't write poetry or if I couldn't paint or, you know, it's like last night a DJ saved my life kind of thing. But what they're really saying is music um, saved me because they know that it's that eternal creative spirit that comes from the creator that makes us want to create too. Because the reasons that we create is we want to make ourselves happy, but we want to make people happy too. We want to make people happy. We want to whether you want to stir thought or whether you want to be provocative or whether you want people to think, either way, it builds people up. It encourages people. It stirs people. It touches people. It's, uh, being an artist is not like being in a rock band, though. It's, uh, being an artist is a little more subliminal. It's a little more sublime. In a band, yeah, you can get instantaneous feedback, but being an artist takes a little more thought, so to speak. I'm not saying musicians don't think. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying uh, there's a... There's, a few more layers of complexity when you when you're making fine art sometimes I think versus within a band because in a band I think you can kind of sometimes rely on your bandmates and you know on the actual unit but as an artist it's just you and the work it's you know you and your own ability to express what's flowing through you at that moment but and at that time it's flowing through you you don't know, but it's gonna. You might help someone, help someone down the road. So I think it's just important to know that, though, if you're gonna be creative, just know that that gift comes from the creator. It just does. Mm. And once you're able to understand that, I think you're able to. Um, you can be humble in all those things and be humble about it, and be helpful about it, and help others with it, and you know, take care of it. And I'll say this too. I, I'll wrap it up and say this. I'll say, I say this. Take care of your art because your art comes from you, comes from inside you. Take care of your art and one day your art will take care of you. You know, people just don't, people just don't see how much work is really involved in this rap shit. I didn't know it. I didn't see it. I never saw it until I was actually in it. You really gotta be in it to understand what it's like but you always gotta people always gotta see you smile you always gotta put on that fake you know what i'm saying like no matter what you just so been you through be you just gotta be right and live large big house five cars you're in charge coming up in the world don't trust nobody gotta look over your shoulder constantly i remember the days when i was a young kid growing up looking in the mirror dreaming about blowing up the rock crowd make money chill with the honey sign autographs and whatever the people want Funny how impossible dreams manifest in the games that be coming with it. Nevertheless, you got the gold for the gusto, but you don't know about the blood, sweat, and tears. And losing some of your peers, and losing some of yourself through the years past gone by. Hopefully, it don't manifest. But the wrong guy, egomaniac, in the brainiac, don't know how to act. Shit's deep, 48 tracks, studio gangs, the max. Sign the deal, thinks he's gonna make a meal, but never will. Till he crosses over steel, filling your head with fantasies. Come with me, show the sacrifice it takes to make Wanna be a rap superstar in the biz and take shit from people who don't know what it is. I wish it was all fun and games, but the price of fame is high. And some can't pay the way, feel trapped in what you rapping.
everybody shits on this shit. They wanna be a rap superstar and live large. A big house, five cars, complete a charge. Coming up in the world, don't trust nobody. Gotta look over your shoulder constantly to be a rap superstar and live large. A big house, five cars, complete a charge. Coming up in the world, don't trust nobody. Gotta look over your shoulder constantly. When you sign to a record label, you don't know you sign your life over. And these white boys don't care about you Cause the minute you fall off They'll find another Noriega And they'll find another component Noriega And they'll find another B-Real So you need to just keep stack your chips up Do what you gotta do while you hot And motherfucking get out the game Just just like the drug game It's even worse Because in the drug game If somebody jerk you You can shoot them and kill them And if you, in this game If somebody jerk you You gotta be humble No matter what you just been through Shit has gotta be right You gotta approach people You gotta be on the up and up And everything's gotta be all good See somebody slap hands with them, you know what I'm saying? Give them a pound or whatever it is, you know, but you always gotta act like ain't shit. So you wanna be a rap superstar and live large, a big house, five cars, your rent charge. Coming up in the world, don't trust nobody, gotta look over your shoulder constantly to be a rap superstar and live large, a big house, five cars, your rent charge. Coming up in the world, don't trust nobody, gotta look over your shoulder constantly. My old son don't know me, I'm chilling in the Stop.